This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Stoney's discovery of a map hidden behind a crocheted picture frame his father made sort of threw a wrench in the spokes. It's not something we had planned on. Of course, if you find a map, you have to explore it. When we arrived at the undisclosed location, we immediately set up, after a customary shot of Stoney's homemade whiskey, and started digging. Mm. You get that? Something under there. You're the rock. I don't hope, hope we got $40,000 here. There's a chance you're going to find money. Good chance. Stoney couldn't help but be excited at the possibility of what we might find. Oh, what did you just hear? Heard that. What did you just hear? Oh, oh. it's fine. There it is. Oh, oh my what God. You, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now, wait just a minute, Sean. Don't be... That, that, okay. that could be a rock. It's hard. Is it hard? It's black. Is it black? Oh my god. What could it be? From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. By the fall of 1973, Billy Burt's younger brother Ray had been killed after pressing his luck one too many times as the town bully. Billy was in prison, and the Dixie Mafia had slowed to a crawl without their leader. Young Stoney and the rest of the Burt family carried on and led normal lives the best they could. But Billy would be released from prison after only eight and a half months of a two-year sentence for the trumped-up gun charge brought on by ATF Special Agent Jim West. Any hopes of that time in jail knocking some sense into Burt quickly vanished, because he didn't miss a beat. It was as if he had never left at all. Willie Hester was still missing. Harold Chansey's nephew Donald was killed for taking money from Jim West for information on whiskey still locations. A woman named Carolyn Cooper was found in the bottom of a well. She had been shot, trash had been dumped on top of her, and the well dynamited. She, too, had been providing information to Jim West about still locations. Billy's self-preservation mode kicked into overdrive, and all witnesses were eliminated. While he was in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, Many times I've heard him say, I wish the hell I'd done five years. Because that little bit of time, it was him and Harold Chance in, in there at the same time. And the black pills were there. They never run out of it. They just had a big, big vacation. Hell, he come out bolder than ever. He always regretted that he didn't get more time then to knock some sense into it. It seems even Billy thought he had gone too far for his own good. This is far from making a little moonshine on the side for extra cash. 
Maybe even he could see that it had all gotten so out of control that the only way it would end was with him in prison for the rest of his life or with his death. Still, he pressed on as he always had, and Billy Wayne Davis was right by his side. Billy Wayne Davis was uh, secretly having an affair with a lady, a woman out of Marietta, whose husband, who drove a white and red Chevelle, was the runner for Black Beauties for some kingpin, which was not involved in the Dixon Mafia kingpins. Now, Davis was a wealth of information. He, all, he made a hit point to know stuff like this. He got a lot of information from lawyers, most of it. He just was a man who could find out stuff. Well, he was having an affair with her, and uh, anyway, she told him about her husband hauling these pills once a month or so, took him and showed him the address, told him that the pills was always a couple hundred thousand, and she had been with him on a few runs. So, Davis comes to my father, and he one more guy, my father gets Otis. And they go up there on a Monday, and uh, they took a sleeping bag with them, a pair of binoculars, a little ball of pills. They left Otis there with binoculars, right up the road from the house where you could see everything, in the woods beside a church. And his job was to stay there, stay awake, and uh, let them know when that Chevelle pulled up. Well, they left him there on Monday, Monday evening. And they, every morning, Davis would come from Austell, and he would meet my father at Mama Pop's truck stop. And he'd go in there and get Otis a sandwich or whatever, and they'd ride up there to see Otis and see if the car had got there. Now this went on all the way through Friday morning. On Friday morning when they pulled in, Otis said, Billy, that car ain't been gone 15 minutes. He pulled up, backed up, towed it in some boxes. And they're right now. So my father and Davis got Otis in the car, pulled back down there. He said, Otis, uh, I'm gonna cut this car off right here. And I'm gonna ask man, can he use his phone? And when, when I tell you, you just back the car right up to the steps right there. Cut the car off, and Davis and Otis stayed in there. And they got out, went knocked on the door, and asked me, "Could he use his phone?" Sure. So, sure enough, you know, he had him when he had the gun on there. He told Otis to back the car in there. Bill Wayne and my father and Otis was inside the house, and uh, now Bill Wayne done the talking mostly because yeah, my daddy. He couldn't talk plain enough for a stranger to understand him. They say what too many times. So, uh, Bill Wayne said, we know you got the dope here. We know you got the pills. All you got to do is uh, give them up. We want, you, we want the pills. And the man, the woman told him, they didn't know what he was talking about. And he told him, just lay on the floor right there. So they laid down on the floor and he immediately found the pills. First, is this a shotgun house? Just two rooms. When he pulled up the bed sheet, he seen the boxes under there. Pulled one out, opened it up full of black pills. When he looked under there, got the boxes out. Last box he got out, he seen a 22 rifle on the floor at the, at the headboard. He pulled it out, checked it, it was loaded. 
You know, as he walked by him, he just shot him over the back of the head. Just like it was everyday thing. First time Otis had ever seen something like that. Billy Mayne was immune to it. He was just bad, you see. So sure enough, two days later, Daddy got a call from uh, Otis' wife, Trisha, his niece. She said, Billy, you got to come see about Otis. Something's wrong with him. She said he's on top of the house, hugging the chimney, talking, crying his head. So my father pulled up over there, got him down talking to him, and so Otis told him, I can't get off my mind. I can't get off my mind, Billy. Well, Otis left there with him, and that's the last time he's ever seen. Davis made it clear to Billy that Otis had to go. How long would it be before his conscience got the best of him? and he went to the police to confess what he saw, or confided in someone else that would go to the police. They couldn't risk it, and Billy knew Davis was right. But he didn't kill him, he would have, he but he knew he had to go. Now Davis didn't like Otis, didn't like him at all because Otis, behind the back, called him a chicken shit. Otis was shot by Davis and uh, because they loved him and didn't want to have to kill him. And, you know, if you love somebody, but they got to die, I can see not what this, I can understand it. My father let Davis kill him while him and Bobby Gaddis buried him. So they buried him over there at the Mulberry. 24-year-old Otis Reedling was buried deep in the red clay banks of the Mulberry River. And not long after, Billy realized that there was another loose end to take care of. Billy Wayne Davis's mistress that had turned them onto the pill robbery in the first place had become erratic and accused Davis of shorting her on her one-third of the money made when they sold the stolen pills. Billy Burt was not a man who allowed loose ends. He had already proved that no matter how close to home a problem was, business is business. Even if Davis loved or cared for the young woman, he needed to come around to Bert's way of thinking. She was having an affair with Davis. She's the one that told Davis all about it. She had done it for her one-third cut of the money for the pills. She got upset because they were but 120,000 pills when it's supposed to be 200,000, according to her husband's normal haul. She accused Davis of beating her. Davis asked my father what he thought. He said, if she's going to do it now, she's going to do it 10 years from now. We need to get rid of her. Davis had a date with her that night. After he told my father, it was set up for him to be on the side of the road with a car trouble. Davis was stop and offer help and they would take care of it. When he got in the car, he sat in the back seat. And he said, well, my home ain't 10 miles away. How would you charge me just take me home and my wife bring me back? David said, I wouldn't charge nothing. He looked at the woman, she said, I ain't gotta be home at eight o'clock in the morning, go ahead. Just before they got to where Otis was buried, my father pulls out a rope, chokes him this right there in the front of the seat. They pull it in there and buried her. And that's where she's at today.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The banks of the Mulberry River were now becoming littered with bodies. Bert was being pursued hot and heavy by Jim West on the east side of Georgia and Davis on his turf on the west side of Georgia had attracted the attention of a newly elected sheriff named Earl D. Lee, who would end up making it his mission to bring down Davis. Sheriff Lee's number one arch enemy was Billy Davis, Billy Wayne Davis, because he was sheriff of Douglasville, Georgia, and that was Billy Wayne Davis' territory. He didn't really know anything about Billy Burt. Now, Sheriff Lee was a real lawman. He never, he never breached that, not to my knowledge, nor to my dad's. And if you're a real lawman, and you're a real gangster. You respect each other almost as much as you do the other gangster with that code because those kind of lawmen are just few and far between. Sheriff Earl Lee was a real man's man, a fearless, take-no-shit, honest lawman. He was then, and still is, highly revered. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office and jail are even located on Earl D. Lee Boulevard. But in 1973, Lee was gunning for Davis, and he made it known. The law was now coming at the Dixie Mafia from all angles. Davis was working in Sheriff Lee's territory. Sheriff Lee was the type man, he didn't just, he wasn't looking for stars or notches on his belt. He took care of his county. Well, Davis was fool enough to keep on and on. He couldn't catch Davis by normal procedures. So what he'd done, Davis run a car lot, which was his front, and he would call up every what bank or any business associates of Davis. He could find out and he'd call up so this is Sheriff Earl Lee. I understand that you're doing business with Bill Wayne Davis. I understand you're giving this man credit, but I need to tell you, this is cold-blooded murder son of a bitch and he's going down. Anybody that's associated with him is going down. Boy, that, that put a hurting on Davis. That's why he come to my father. He said, this man's got to go. Davis hired Billy Burt to kill Sheriff Earl Lee. This was something that made Billy uneasy from the start. Oddly enough, he had a respect for lawmen, and he knew that killing a town's beloved sheriff could bring heat, which was the last thing they needed. But begrudgingly, he accepted the job. Now, Billy Wayne had took him to show him Earl Lee. It was in court one day. Bill Wayne, he took him there, showed him who Lee was to kill him. Now, you know, Floyd Hoard was a hard lesson. And my daddy already had second thoughts about taking this job, but Sheriff Lee was such an intense force and he was just notorious. He was very, very powerful in Georgia. 
Some sheriffs are powerful, but some are bigger in life, like Beaver Pusser. Sheriff Lee was that way. Bert's plan was to wait for Sheriff Lee to walk out of his church on a Sunday afternoon and gun him down. That being said, the first time he laid in wait on Sheriff, he changed churches and he never come out. The second time, it was him and Charlie Reed. I've heard my dad tell me this at least three times. When he come out, he used a 28-inch single-barrel shotgun with a slug. Now, a shotgun with a slug with a 20-inch barrel, you're accurate easily with 100 foot. And a slug is about the size of a nickel to a quarter. Big ball. Big, that's why they call it a slug, just a big wall of lead. When it hits a man, it really, he's gone. So when he come out, he had the shotgun on him, and he was surrounded. He was one of the last ones out of church. He was surrounded by his wife and all his babies. And he said something just attacked him. It's not his, I guess it's conscious, but he, something just come over him. Charlie looked at him and said, Billy, you all right? He said, yeah, uh, let's get out of here. He said, you ain't going to do it? He said, hell no. They left. Next day, he took David back his money. He done paid him half of it. And uh, told him, said, uh, son, uh, uh, I shouldn't took this job, but here's your money back. Don't uh, don't do this. Don't get nobody else to do it. If, if you do, you, you're really screwing up. This man got a file on you, and they're going to come straight to you. Well, David's had a fit. Damn it, I'll double the money. If you'll take that mind, blow him and his whole damn family up, I'll double the money. It was no use. It was that moment my daddy knew that. Kind of like Bobby Gaddis said, uh, Davis was kind of sadistic. Well, what man wants to blow up a damn sheriff's family? He wanted him so bad, he wanted to kill his family too. This might be the only time that Billy Burt had a man in his sights and decided to let him live for reasons unknown even to him. I guess the thought of murdering a man with a shotgun in front of his wife and children as he walked out of church didn't sit well with Billy. Maybe, just maybe, he was finally starting to see how far he had wandered from the man he used to be. He was a hitman paid by Davis to kill, but even as far out of touch as he was at this point, he still stood by his convictions and his code of respect, even for a lawman. He would not kill Sheriff Earl Lee, or any lawman for that matter, unless he was forced to do so, and no amount of money could change his mind. A rift was slowly growing between Bert and Davis. Billy's boys in the Dixie Mafia never accepted him, and they were constantly in his ear about how Billy Wayne Davis could not be trusted. Billy Sunday Burt was about to learn the hard way that even though sometimes you need to ignore what others say and follow your own path, sometimes you should just shut up and listen to what people are trying to tell you. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Dixie Mafia continued on with business as usual. Billy would drive to Mexico once a month and bring back a trunkload of black beauties, which they were all eating like candy at this point. The whiskey was flowing as much as ever, and they were robbing banks left and right. Jim West was pressing hard to get to Billy, though he seemed to always be one step behind. And Sheriff Earl Lee was still gunning for Davis in West Georgia. The pressure was mounting, and coming at the Dixie Mafia from all sides. Eventually, something had to give. And eventually, someone would slip up. He said, don't ever get in your head rob a bank. He said, pick something that's insured and fertilize it at night where there's no chance of hurting nobody. But do not rob a bank because if you do and get away from it, with it, you will never stop because there's no drug on earth that would give you the same feeling as robbing a bank and then getting away with it. I was in the Loganville office. We had opened a branch up there in Loganville. We had five tellers, two secretaries, and I was the assistant branch manager. That's Bob Brooks, the same man who worked as a stock boy in his younger years at Jim Dawes' grocery store selling sugar to moonshiners. He was working at the bank the day Burton Davis robbed it. I remember it all like it was yesterday. It was kind of <laughs> burned in my, my brain. Bob Brooks is on a very short list of people who have had a face-to-face encounter with Billy Burt in the midst of a crime and lived to tell the story. Truthfully, he may be the only one on that list. About 10.30 in the morning when Billy Sunday Burt came in, I was in my office on the phone, and I looked up and he leaped over the counter. He jumped five feet in the air, put one foot on the counter, and it was over. I was looking at him when he did it. Johnny Gaddis came in my office and got me and branch manager and took us out to the lobby. Made our secretaries and us lay down at gunpoint. Mr. Brooks mistakenly refers to Bobby Jean Gaddis as Johnny Gaddis. It's important to make that distinction. And he would later correct himself in saying that it was Billy Wayne Davis that came into his office. Gaddis was the driver of the getaway car parked out front and was dressed as a woman to avoid suspicion. Gaddis had two guns in his hand. One was a 45 automatic. It had a barrel this big around the other. <laughs> it was in my nose. And uh, he had a 357 in the other hand. He brought us out stood over us, all the employees were laying on the ground. Billy Sunday was behind the counter where the tellers were and he was going out and getting the money out of the drawer. In each drawer, we had bait money for the hundreds and fifties when I was in one section, but when you pulled them out, it set an alarm off. 
Billy unknowingly set off a silent alarm when he pulled the money out of the teller's drawers. This was fairly new technology in the 1970s. But within just minutes, police officer William Remo Cody arrived at the back entrance of the bank and immediately started exchanging gunfire with Billy Burt. One bullet came within an inch of Burt's head. So close, as he would later say, he could hear the bullet whiz by his ear. Burt retaliated with a shotgun, with several of the pellets hitting Cody. One pellet went through his jaw, cut his tongue almost out, come out this side, one hit his arm, and one hit him in the side. Well, when I got out there, he was laying on the ground, and they were getting away. And he was shooting at them with a service ball. I got to him, and he was trying to talk on the radio, and he couldn't talk because of the blood, and his mouth was tore up. We had a first aid kit in the bank, and I got it, went out there and tried to stop the bleeding on it. And the ladies inside called, called it in please. While Bert exchanged gunfire with Officer Cody, Davis continued to collect money and keep the bank patrons at bay. The three men made their quick escape while providing cover fire out of the back window of the stolen station wagon they were in. They would ditch that car a few miles away and get into another stolen car they had staged, and once more a few miles further when they would get into their own car and head back to split up the cash. They would toss out their ski masks and gloves along the way. This was always how it was done. My father robbed banks, mostly in Georgia. But if it was a second, it would be Alabama. Third, it would be both Carolinas. And the only reason he robbed them in Texas or New Orleans was because associates told him of one that was right for the picking, they would check it out. When you make lots of money in a bank, I don't know what it is about it, but it goes through your fingers, and he lived large. But something bothered Billy. Officer Cody seemed to arrive on the scene way too quickly mere minutes after the robbers arrived. Billy immediately smelled a rat, but he convinced himself it was just paranoia brought on by the black pills, and he let it go. In the days leading up to a robbery like this, Bert would case the building so that he could see the pattern of comings and goings to see when the activity was lowest and when the shift changes occurred. Sometimes he would create a diversion across town to see how police reacted. Now he cased the bank by using a water tower or a smokestack with binoculars and he would make a fire on one side of town, have some have on the other side of town and he would watch the way the police and fire department reacted once he knew the number of police from there. Then he calculated what would happen at the bank if they got a unknown alarm and only then would he tell his guys what their job was before they robbed the bank the next day. They never knew. Only him. Carver Bank was one of the jobs that Davis had on his list. And when Davis, when Daddy went and checked it out, he had a mistress with him. Now she's still around today. I won't call her name. But now this mistress was, uh, I say, as far as mistresses go, as far as affection goes, probably the one. And uh, she would never what you might say, rat or talk law or anything like that. Not a very smart move, if you ask me. 
but I would guess the pills had something to do with that lapse of good judgment. The same mistress of Bert's had, in fact, been with him while he cased the Loganville bank as well. Well, when he rode into town on the Crawford Bank, him, Bobby Gaddis, Bill Wayne, the second time, now the first time he was there, everything looked good. But when they rode there to do it, he said that he looked, he said every other truck had a damn gun rack on it, and every other truck had a damn farmer with a straw hat, looked like hee-haw riding around. It was obvious to him. It don't take six cents to read that. His hair stood up on both his neck. That ain't six cents. That's just reading your surroundings. I don't believe there's such a thing as six cents. My father didn't believe it. But there is such a thing as counting the steps of three steps ahead is what's probable. <laughs> when you see too many farmers with straw hats that don't look natural, you, your common sense tells you they probably ain't a damn farmer. That ain't six cents. He walked in, hair already stood up on his head. He seen a damn woman and three men. And they looked like professionals. Damn sure didn't like bank tellers. He got the hell out of there before he ever even started to the teller. Told Davis, Bobby Jean, get the hell out of here. We set up. Rode down the road, and they were saying, oh shit, Billy, you're paranoid. Let's go back and hit that damn bank. He's all right, turn around. I go back, and I go in there and change the $100 bill, and I look at it one more time. They turned around. He walked in. When he got to them, teller, he said, he just knew they were going to blow him away before he got out for a fact. He seen law in their eyes. They were professionals. He changed the $100 bill, and as he walked out, he expected to get blown away. Six cents or not, the rat that Billy thought he smelled just might have been real after all. He got back to the car. He said, get the hell out of here. They did. Within 15 minutes, they was in a cool car. They wouldn't stole him. While they was at the first hot car arguing about it, them trying to tell him he's probably paranoid, let's go back. They come over the radio. Back then, there was news flashes on AM radios. Crawford Bank just robbed. Two men shot, both dead. Baby was patting him on the back on the way home. This, this is what the deputy's saying to the news. What I don't understand is there was only two GBI stationed in Athens, and there was 14 here within 30 minutes. So, you might say he was psychic. I say he just uh, wasn't totally retarded. What do you think? Two men had walked into the same bank on the same day, just after Billy left and attempted to rob it. They never stood a chance. Billy's gut told him they were being set up. And this time, his instincts proved to be true. They made it out alive, but he still had a problem. How did the police arrive so quickly? And how did 14 GBI agents arrive within minutes to this tiny little town? Obviously, it wasn't either of the two men with him when robbing the banks, and he didn't talk about jobs on the phone, so it wasn't likely a wiretap. His mistress was closed mouth. He had no doubts about her. She lived right there here in Winder. He had seen damn green. LTD parked in front of it, same kind Jim West drove, and he suspected that her mother, or at least Jim West had contacted her mother, but he didn't mention anything. Well, he knew that there was a leak somewhere and he couldn't figure out where in the hell it was, so he just started thinking about it. 
But it wasn't a week that went by that she asked him to come by on his way through and take her phone bill. Back then, you come down here to downtown Winder, you pay your light bill and your phone bill in the same place, City Hall. And when you walk down and paid your phone bill, which was probably $10, you could ask, what's this number? Matter of fact, our first phone number was four digits, 2341. As he brought it in town, he looked at that phone bill and seen two calls from Monroe. Well, this is a mystery, so he, he's a just man, you know. He's, so when he paid that bill, he says, uh, can you tell me who this is? I, I don't remember the number. And the lady done her thing. She said, yes, sir. This is uh, to a Jim West in Good Hope, Georgia. He said, thank you. I remember now. It was as simple as this. If Billy and his mistress spent the day hanging out in Loganville, and a day or two later, a bank was robbed in the same place, there was a good chance that if she spent time with him in Crawford, or anywhere else for that matter, there would be a robbery attempt there as well within a few days. She would report to Jim West. He had to shut her up. On that following Monday, Billy put into motion a plan to deal with the woman who he was sure had been feeding information to Jim West. Although it wasn't his mistress, it was her mother. He spent the entire night outside of the house, her mother, with the intention to kill her. Now what saved her was this woman pulling into her house with her two kids. And he said, I wasn't about to hurt hurting her two kids for her. The fact that Billy's mistress pulled up at that exact moment in time to visit her mother with her children saved her mother's life and likely her own. But what Billy didn't know was that not long after the Loganville bank robbery, a critical mistake had been made. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.